Mediatrix Radio presents Pathways to Rome, a weekly hour-long journey that brings Rome home for you. Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Gus Kilo and Kathy Kerfoot, take us on an audio tour of the Vatican where every work of art, building, and liturgical event is a unique expression of Christianity. The center of the Catholic faith teaches while it inspires, but there's a lot to learn. So let's join our tour guides for this week's apologetic adventure. Welcome to today's show of Pathways to Rome. It is the show that brings Rome home to you. I'm Kathy Kerfoot. I'm here in the studios of WCKI Radio Station. And with me in the studio is my co-host, Gus Killo. Welcome, Gus. Thank you. Hi, Kathy. And uh, we are joined by Father Kirby. Hey, Kathy, Gus. Nice to hear from you, Father. Today we're going to be talking about Fatima, Portugal, and also the apparitions that happened there in the early 20th century and the visit of Our Lady to the three young children in Fatima. Gus, do you want to take over here and tell us what you know about Fatima? Absolutely. Fatima, of course, is the name of a city in, in Portugal. In 1917, there was a, an apparition, uh, first of an angel and then of Our Lady, to three young shepherd children. And their names were Lucia, Jacinta, and Francisco. And now they've been raised to the altars of the church. And we have Servant of God, Lucia, Blessed Jacinto, and Blessed Francisco. But these were three very simple shepherd children And in 1917, first an angel appeared to them, and then they were told to come back, and a beautiful lady appeared to them. And they had repeated visions over the course of several months of Our Lady. Our Lady requested that they return to this place on the 13th of each month. And so the children would return, and Our Lady would give them messages. And among other things in these apparitions, she was telling them, she said, many souls go to hell because there's no one to pray for them. And at one point, they were actually given a vision of hell where they saw the earth open up before them like a giant sinkhole, and and they just saw just a horrific vision of, of souls and demons and ugly shapes. And Our Lady was saying, this is what happens to poor souls. And Our Lady wanted them to to build a church. She also wanted them to pray, 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 and really stress praying the rosary. In fact, when we say the rosary, a prayer that we add to the end is, is, oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those who are in most need of thy mercy. Which is called the Fatima prayer. Exactly. The reason we say that is because Our Lady asked us to say that at the end of every rosary. But the most amazing thing about Fatima, where Our Lady said, when you return on the 13th of October, and by this point, the fame of these apparitions had been spreading throughout the countryside in Portugal, and a bunch of people, both skeptics and believers... And even newspaper how, Yes, people. newspaper, exactly, you're right, said, okay, what's this all going to be about? Because they were promised there was going to be a sign, a, a miracle. What happened is what we know as the miracle of the sun which was actually witnessed by somewhere around 70,000 people. It was reported in secular newspapers. All of a sudden, visible to everybody there, the sun started dancing and spinning and shooting off all kinds of colors. Then the sun appeared to be tumbling towards the earth, growing larger. People could feel it getting warmer. The amazing thing was it had been raining all day. People were standing in a field. 
that was completely muddy. And when this started happening, as you can imagine, the terror of imagining you're about to be enveloped by the sun, people dropped on their knees. Atheists were converted on the spot. God have mercy on me. And the amazing thing is the sun retreated. And the the earth was at that moment completely dry. The mud had completely dried up. So this was something that was witnessed by 70,000 people. So Incredible. this is what we call an, an apparition. And Father Kirby, can you help define for us what an apparition is, please? Yes, and you know, I can imagine that some of our listeners are probably hearing these stories and, and, and wondering just what is going on. Those who are Catholic that are listening to our show, and, and in particular maybe those who are not Catholic, and so it might help for us to begin with that first question. What, what is an apparition? When we speak of Mary of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, was the historical mother of Jesus Christ, how is it that she could appear in Portugal in 1917? Uh, what, what do we mean by this? And, and really, uh, an apparition, the easiest way to understand it is that it's a spiritual appearance of a heavenly person. So, Gus, you mentioned, for example, the first appearance was of the guardian angel of Portugal to the three children. So it was this a spiritual appearance of a, of a heavenly being, heavenly person. When we speak of Fatima, we're especially speaking of Our Lady's apparition. That Mary appeared in 1917, the same Mary who was the mother of Jesus, who reigns with her son in service to her son. This is Our Lady, Mary, who appeared to these three children uh, to what purpose? To come to repeat essential aspects of her son's teaching. Anyone who might be listening or anyone who thinks that the apparitions of Mary or of angels or of saints in the history of the church, that somehow this takes away from Jesus, hasn't really given the time or attention to what is meant by apparitions. Because Gus, as you've been saying, the entire message of Fatima is to turn to Jesus. Gus and Kathy, we just talked about that prayer Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins. Save us from the fires of hell. Lead us and all souls into heaven, especially those most in need of thy mercy. That's the prayer that Mary asked humanity. Pray this, pray this. Pray to my son, love him, turn to him, trust in him. That's the powerful message. It's a repeat of the gospel, the essential tenets of our Lord's gospel message to humanity. And October 13th was one of those 13s of the month that Mary appeared to the children. And that is a particular important one because it was the end of the apparition. And that's the big one. Well, May 13th, when the apparitions began, is also big. May 13th really is a huge one. So we speak of Our Lady's feast day, Our Lady of Fatima. We think of May 13th. And this year was particularly important because our Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, visited Fatima on her feast day, on Our Lady of Fatima's feast day. And so while he was there, it was a full visit to Portugal, but he made sure that there was a specific time for prayer and reflection and the celebration of the Mass in Fatima. And so Pope Benedict, like Pope John Paul II, has this great devotion to Mary. As Mary points, even in the, in the Gospels, she points to her son. When Mary in the Gospels came to her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth greeted her, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You know, Mary didn't say, yeah, I'm great. I'm awesome. Mary immediately turned this praise of Elizabeth into a prayer, into that beautiful prayer in Luke's gospel, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's role is always leading us 
to her son. She did it at Adam in 1917. She continues to do that in heaven, petitioning for us, praying for us, encouraging, guiding us, so we can come to love and serve Jesus as we're called to as baptized Christians. So an apparition is, is a powerful reminder to each of us of what the Lord has given to us and what he calls us to be. Now, the homily that the Holy Father gave in Fatima was particularly powerful. Kathy, I was wondering if you had a few parts that, that you might want to talk about from the Holy Father's homily. You know, Father, what really appealed to me right at the beginning of his homily was the fact that he called the way Mary appeared to the children, the way she broke through the clouds and through the heavens, was like a flash of light to the children. And that's what they witnessed in the apparition, you know, when they saw her coming to them. And he was talking about the faithful surrounding him at the chapel that was built in her honor there in Fatima and how they were holding candles and it was reminiscent of a light that shone from the heavens to the children when she came to them. He goes on to say that that's not a light of her own. That was a gift from God, the light that she has. And and it really brought me back to thinking in Luke, where the angel appears to Mary and says, blessed are you among women, and calls her full of grace. And all of that is a gift from God. And I think so many people today think Catholics worship Mary in a sense that we think she's some type of goddess, but all of this is from God. All those graces that she was given are from God. All the light that she has is from God, and all the good that she can do still today is from God himself. I think we said that in a previous show that we had about Our Lady back in October. Mary's light is a reflected light, like the light of the moon is a reflection of the sun. Mm -hmm. Uh, All perfections Mary has come from God. It is from Mm -hmm. God but is God who has raised her up to this perfection. I tell you in particular, I love also that the Holy Father, when he began his remarks and he mentioned why he went to Fatima, because really of all the places the Holy Father could visit, the fact that he would choose Fatima, it was not a particular high anniversary, you know, in the sense of in seven years, it will be a huge anniversary for the apparitions from 1917 to 2017. But really for him to go in 2010, the question was, well, why? And the Holy Father, right at the very beginning, says, it's the year of the priest. He says, I come here for the church. Mm-hmm. I come here to pray for the church. I come here to pray for priests. He says, I come to repeat with the shepherd children, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And so here is the vicar of Christ on earth, Pope Benedict XVI, going to Fatima in humble prayer. Himself, he says, I come as a pilgrim in order to pray for the church and to pray for the priest. And while not explicitly mentioning any particular sufferings, he mentions that the church, afflicted as it is by various ills and sufferings, he went to Fatima to pray. What a powerful example to each of us in our own life, our own difficulties, our own struggles, that the Vicar of Christ points us in moments of difficulty. We go to pray. We go on pilgrimage. We turn to the Lord. And that is a powerful witness that he is not hesitant to say and just puts it right out there for each one of us. Why Fatima? Because it was time to pray. It was time to pray. And he goes on to say in so many areas of the world, the light, the light of Christ is in danger of being snuffed out forever. And then he goes on and he says, our highest priority is to make God visible in the world. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, He's telling us, do not be afraid to talk of God out there. Do not be afraid 
to show your faith. Do not be afraid to live your faith in this world. The children of Fatima uh, were, were persecuted by the authorities, but they had to be strong in their faith, believing that what they were talking about was actually coming from God. And of course, the church did not immediately approve this. The church was suspicious in, in a sense that it had to be tested. Father, I know that Catholics are not obliged to believe this. Why is that? And the, the other question would be, how would the church determine if this is something that we may believe? How is an apparition approved? That's a very important question because you know, oftentimes uh, members of the faithful will say that they, they have seen things or experienced things. And I really believe that the Lord is very generous, even with uh, mystical graces, mystical gifts to members of the baptized uh, who really seek his face, who need to hear a particular message or be reminded of it or strengthened in it or be an instrument of that message to others. So I think that it could probably even happen on a much more ordinary scale than what we may sometimes think. But as far as an apparition that is particularly pressing for the universal church, and that requires a scrutiny of their church, because most people, members of the faithful, might have a mystical experience. They know what the Lord is saying. They know what it means. Perhaps there's a family that's in grave difficulty, and the member of the faithful suddenly just receives this burst of experience of the Lord's mercy. And they know that the Lord is is strengthening them to be an instrument of mercy in their family. You know, so that's something that has a particular local importance. When we speak of an apparition like Fatima or Lourdes or Knock in Ireland, we speak of an apparition that has universal significance. And that demands the discernment of the Church. Because the Church wants to make sure that people are not led astray. So there is a long process. The apparition has to end. All apparitions have to be concluded. There is theological scrutiny, psychological scrutiny of the visionary or supposed visionary by the bishop, the local bishop. If the local bishop thinks that there is precedence, that there's something there, then he can send it on to Rome. When it comes to Rome, there's a body of theological advisors that reviews the case. They might ask for more information from the local church, from the diocese, the, the bishop. They may give aspects of it to other commissions to evaluate. It could sometimes take a few centuries hmm. for the church to give a judgment on a particular operation. First, the church sees no pressing urgency. Public revelation has been given in all its fullness in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Private revelations, and that's the term we use, private revelation, when we speak of of Fatima, and that's just different from public revelation, which is the revelation given to us by Jesus. That's the revelation, the essential highlight, the substance of it all. A private revelation points to aspects of the public revelation to remind the faithful of those essential points. So when we speak of a private revelation, the Church sees no urgency. It could take a few centuries. Not a problem. The only ones who are bound in conscience to obey or to listen to the apparition is the actual visionary, or in this case, the the three visionaries of Fatima. So those are the three that are obliged to listen. The rest of the faithful, if it's approved by the Church after scrutiny and discernment, the rest of the church is offered as a means of holiness or means of perseverance, which the faithful can choose or not choose according to their own discretion. So the church is actually very cautious, but also wants to make sure that gifts that are given, particularly of Our Lady or the angels or of particular saints, 
that these are offered to the faithful in our mutual efforts to be holy. Well, Father, in 1930, the Church declared the apparitions worthy of credence. Now, is that the same as its approval? It is, and, and actually the, the wording, Kathy, there is, is very good, that they're worthy of credence, which means at that point the Church gives them to the faithful, these apparitions, these messages, to the faithful. They are worthy of credence. There is nothing of falsity. The Church deems that these apparitions were authentic and tells the faithful these are now credible. Okay. So if you choose, and if they could be helpful to you, these are now something that can be believed. They've and undergone scrutiny. It is true. But a member of the faithful could say, I'm actually doing okay. I've got public revelation. I've got my devotions. I've got my you know, daily mass. I've, I pray the rosary and so on. And, and really, I don't need the message of Our Lady of Fatima. I would say, well, maybe you should give him another look. <laughs> but uh, the person in good conscience could say that and not be missing anything because the heart the substance of our Lord's message is the public revelation given by the Church, particularly in the Scriptures. So that's something we can clarify and, and so on, but definitely that decree of, cre- of credence was in. Of course, in, in Fatima's case, it was, it was pretty quick. Yeah, that so was only 13 you, uh, years. Right, right, which, you know, there are many apparitions currently that are undergoing scrutiny uh, and discernment and evaluation that could still take some decades or centuries, really. I tell you, uh, guys, you mentioned about how the children suffered, and um, in Fatima, there is this long collection of, of stones, uh, flattened stones, and it's called a Penitence Way. And uh, what it was was one of the mothers of one of the children thought that her child was lying to her about the apparitions, and that she was offending Mary by saying these things, that Mary was appearing to her, and, and so on, you know. And the mother was so concerned for her daughter's salvation, and for her trust, the mother's trust in the child, that she corporally disciplined the child very severely, very severely, trying to get the child to admit that she had lied, that she had lied about seeing Mary, that, that she would for, ask forgiveness for offending Our Lady, ask forgiveness of, of the, her mother herself, that she had lied to her and so on, and she wouldn't. She's like, this is the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And uh, the mother continued to spank her and, and, and discipline her. And uh, she's, this is the truth. This is the truth. And when it was all discovered, and the local bishop supported them after a lot of doubt and questioning and so on, but when the mother found out that it was true, she walked from the door of her home to the church on her knees in sorrow and and repentance. First, that she had not trusted her daughter. Second, that such a beautiful gift would be given and she would not have received it. And to this day, members of the faithful go to Fatima and they do that penitence way on their knees. I can't even imagine the strength of the children to endure all of that suffering, all of the criticism, all the scrutiny. It's it's mind-boggling. And these were normal children. You know, yeah. they described how they would go out. They were shepherd children. They, they had to take care of, you know, the sheep and so on. And, and they would joke around. They would take naps when they weren't supposed to. I mean, these were your average children. And they were not educated. These were simple children. In fact, in the course of Our Lady's messages to them, uh, Our Lady said uh, to the children, please pray for Russia. 
please pray, pray for Russia. She's abandoning the faith. Please pray for her. So they began to pray for Russia. And when they were asked, who's Russia? The children said they didn't know, and they thought she was just some old lady that was no longer practicing the faith. They had no idea that Our Lady was bringing them through their prayer to influence major events in human history. And of course, we might remember that what Our Lady was talking about was that was the time that Russia was turning to communism. And Our Lady was telling these shepherd children in, in Portugal, pray, pray for Russia. And they were praying their hearts out. <laughs> and they thought she was just some old lady. You know, it's interesting, Father. I, I read a book, The Way of Divine Love by Josefa Menendez. And in that book, she talks about being so little and so insignificant. And the Lord talks to her and tells her to write all these things down, all these huge and profound things. And she says, why me? I'm so little. I, I'm so uneducated. And he says, precisely is why I'm using you because you are so little. If he had gone to somebody else more learned, the people would have assumed that it was staging it. But coming from somebody so small and so uneducated and so insignificant, it had to be of God. Uh, In just the same way with these children, it had to be of God. They didn't even know what Russia was. God's done that throughout all of salvation history. He's always taken the weak to confound the strong. One of the things about this apparition is there were secrets given to Lucia, uh, kind of the key visionary, the oldest of them. There were secrets given to her. Can you tell us anything about these secrets, Father, and anything dealing with conspiracy theory or, or whatever? What were the secrets of Fatima? There were actually three secrets that, that were given, and probably the one that has received the most attention and probably was the most pressing was the third secret of Fatima. Some of our listeners may, may have heard reference to this, this third secret. And the secret was not actually revealed, disclosed to the rest of the church and to humanity until the year 2000. And what happened was the other secrets were told and were given. This third secret was held. No one knew why. There was a lot of speculation. As you mentioned, guys, a lot of conspiracy theory about why the third secret would not be revealed. Some had said it, it was the disclosure of the date of the end of the world. Some had said that it was a grave battle or a war and all kinds of speculation. Well, in the year 2000, Pope John Paul II, when he was in Fatima for the beatification of uh, Francesco and, and uh, Jacinta, he gave the order for the third secret to be revealed. And what the third secret was, was that a bishop dressed in white was seen lying in a pool of blood. And why it was never disclosed was it was always understood that the bishop in white was the pope. And it was considered by the church to be a too traumatic or a possibility for instability for that to be disclosed. And why Pope John Paul II gave permission for it to be disclosed in the year 2000, uh, it was the year of Jubilee, it was the beatification of the children. But more importantly, was John Paul always attributed his life to Mary. His motto was totus tuus, all yours, implying all yours Jesus through Mary, which was on his shield was an M for Mary with the cross. And John Paul always gave his life uh, to Mary from the time he was a, a young child. Well, when he was Pope, he was elected in 1978 on May 13th, 1981. While he was preparing for his regular Wednesday audience, uh, he went through St. Peter's Square and he was shot. And that was, of course, was the attempted assassination uh, of Pope John Paul II. 
and he was shot. His white cassock was covered in blood. He, he fell uh, in the Pobmobile and, and was taken to the hospital. Now, what's very important, first is May of 1978, Italy legalized abortion. Wow. And that morning, the Pope was a particularly deep prayer for the soul of Italy and for the offenses to abortion, to the dignity of the human person. So he spends the morning in prayer. He's meeting with various Catholic doctors and scientists and geneticists and so on. And he prepares for his Wednesday audience. He goes out and he's shot. And of course, I hope our listeners are identifying the date, which is May 13th. That, of course, being the feast day of Our Lady of Fatima. He's shot. He falls later. The surgeons uh, show him uh, all his reports and so on. And the doctors say, you should have died. You should have died. Like, we can, we can track the bullet, and suddenly the bullet moved. The, there, there's no reason medically for why this bullet moved in your body. It moved. And John Paul said, one hand shot, the hand of the assassin, and another hand guided. And he attributed uh, that second hand, the guiding hand, to Our Lady. And he said, Mary saved me, Our Lady of Fatima. About six months after his recovery, he had a special mosaic put in St. Peter's Square of Our Lady. Because when he was shot, he said he scanned the square of St. Peter's, and he realized at that point there was no image of Mary. And it's true. So you imagine, St. Peter's Basilica, this massive square, and there was no image of Mary. So six months later, he has this mosaic put up. A little after a year of his recovery, once he's able, Pope John Paul II returns to Fatima, and he puts the bullet, which should have claimed his life, he puts it in the crown of Our Lady of Fatima, and it's still there, that, that bullet. And so the year 2000, 19 years after the attempted assassination, Pope John Paul II said, we can reveal the third secret of Fatima. Now, subsequently, people say, oh, that wasn't the real secret, or he only revealed half of it, or, you know, and, and, and this goes just with the whole conspiracy theory. But uh, at the end of the day, what Our Lady of Fatima was all about was Mary calling the children of God back to its Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it was all about. Russia abandoning the faith, people avoiding Mass, Mass departure of the faith in Portugal, and Mary saying, turn to Jesus, turn to my Son, or because of your sin, because of your denial of God, these bad things will happen. If we don't respond to grace, then we respond to sin. And of course, many people did not respond to Our Lady of Fatima. World War I had already begun, and its atrocities continued to get worse. And we know shortly after we had a massive flu, the Spanish flu. That's how actually Francesco and Jacinta died, with a massive illness. And horrible things, the First World War followed by the Second World War. Before that, the ma uh, this great worldwide depression, and so on. You know, So Our Lady appears to us in Fatima to tell us, turn to my son, turn to my son, pray, seek the Christian virtues of kindness, of forgiveness, of generosity, so that you might know how to live. I really think that is the greatest secret of Fatima, and it's a secret offered to each of us. One of the uh, requests, though, of Our Lady, she had requested that Russia be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. There's some, some debate as to whether that happened. I, I, I believe Pope Pius XII 
did something and, and, and Pope John Paul II consecrated the world, but it had to be done in union with all the bishops. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, and I think this goes in line with a lot of very well-intentioned members of the faithful, and in particular theologians, because at the beginning of the 20th century, Pope Leo XIII dedicated the 20th century to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And Our Lady of Fatima said that the Church and the world needed to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And in particular, uh, we can imagine the, the 21st century, that the 20th would be the Sacred Heart, the 21st would be the Immaculate Heart. And Our Lady in Fatima spoke about the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. People would turn to Mary in order to learn how to pray and to love Jesus. And Pope Pius XII did. He consecrated the world, uh, consecrated Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And there were some people who said that it was not done in its entirety, in its universality, because it was not done with all the bishops. And, of course, the Church reminded us that the Holy Father is the Vicar of Christ and the Supreme Shepherd on Earth, that he holds the Church in his office. So to say that somehow it was not done universally is bad theology. But when Pope John Paul II became Pope, and because of his own love for later Fatima and so on, he decided to renew that consecration uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And so he called all the world's bishops uh, to Rome. And it was the largest gathering of bishops in modern history, second only to the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. So all kinds of bishops came. The statue of Our Lady of Fatima was flown from Fatima to Rome. It was the, only the second time that that statue, which has the bullet in her crown, the, the unique, special statue of Our Lady of Fatima. She's not supposed to leave Fatima, but the Pope requested that she come, and the statue was brought to Rome. And during the year 2000, the Great Jubilee, Pope John Paul II consecrated the 21st century in the world, united with the bishops of the world, uh, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And so, at that point, I think any theologian would be crazy <laughs> To continue to argue this point, it was resolved by the answer of Pius XII. And then, if there were any questions, it was certainly resolved by Pope John Paul II. And I think some of our listeners might be confused by all of this conversation, consecrating the Sacred Heart, consecrating to the Immaculate Heart. Well, what does all this mean? As Catholics, when we speak of consecrating someone, like for example, someone consecrates themselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, or the Pope consecrates the world or Russia or the 21st century to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. What does that mean? And what we just basically mean by that is we ask God's blessing and we distinguish this time period or this person or this country or our world or myself to the special patronage of Mary or to some other saint or angel. And what we do is that consecration depends on our baptism. So, for example, when I consecrate myself to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I'm relying on my graces of baptism. When the Pope consecrates the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, he's relying on the prayers and the sacrifices and the offerings of God's grace of the faithful and of their baptism, as well as the exercise of his own authority as a vicar of Christ. So I think it's very important for us to understand what we mean when we speak of this consecration and what Pope Pius XII did and, and what Pope John Paul II has done and why Our Lady would ask for this special blessing. Should I consecrate this to me? 
so that I can come, so that I can give the grace, so that I can be a special patronage and help Russia, help our world, help the 21st century turn back to my son, turn back to the Lord Jesus. I tell you, it was a beautiful and a powerful speech that the Holy Father gave Pope John Paul II when he consecrated uh, the world in the 21st century to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He said, after this century of tears, that's how he described the 20th century, after the century of tears, we turn with hope to the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. That's the 21st century we live in. And I think that's what Pope Benedict was doing when he visited. In his own homily, he spoke about the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that we might let that heart triumph that so loved and burned for love for Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be, the baptized Christian. That's my answer, Gus. What do you think? (laughs) Very good, Father. Very thorough as usual. Well, Father, I understand that there's a new movie out about Fatima called The Thirteenth Day, and neither Gus or I have seen it, but I understand you have. Yes, and, and really, the website is actually like 13thday.com, or you can Google it. Uh, it is a, a phenomenal movie that is very well done. The, the use of lighting and music and the telling of the story of Fatima is, is just particularly moving. It is very well done, called The Thirteenth Day. And I would encourage any of our listeners who might be intrigued or interested, or those who might have a devotion to Our Lady of Fatima, to, to really look for, for this movie, because it could be very helpful in clarifying things or in deepening our own faith in Jesus as we understand what Our Lady of Fatima was telling us to do. So, yes, definitely a well, great, would, great movie. I would love to see it, and I would love for my children to see it, too, especially. I'm, I'm putting it in my calendar right now as we speak. <laughs> Kathy's looking at me on my phone here. You now, there was a, a movie in the in the... 50s, early 50s, called uh, The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima, which is also great. really showed the suffering of the children. But, uh, you know, another interesting thing about Fatima, uh, Father, is nothing nothing happens coincidentally in God's order of salvation, in God's economy, so to speak. For example, he was born in Bethlehem, which, of course, we know means house of bread, and he is the bread come down from heaven that we receive at the Eucharist. But it's very interesting that Our Lady appears at a place called Fatima, and I don't know if our listeners know, but there is a connection there to Islam. And the interesting thing is that Islam was a religion that developed about 600 years after Christ's resurrection. It had elements of Judaism and Christianity, but the interesting thing is that the Quran, which is the scriptures of Islam actually references Mary, the mother of Jesus, more often than do the Gospels even. She is mentioned a lot and is given the the honor of the mother of a prophet. They, of course, do not recognize Jesus as God, but they do honor Mary as the mother of a prophet. They give her a lot of honor in the Quran, and it's very, very interesting. Can you tell us what the connection with the word Fatima is? I think our listeners will be fascinated to hear. Actually, guys, that that is a very good point, and one that, as you're saying, brings a lot of history and theology and spirituality to bear. First, it's important, any of our listeners who may not know that, but that both Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, uh, was occupied by Muslim forces for over 800 years. And as part of the occupation, they renamed many of the cities, or founded new cities, and named them after holy people within of the Muslim tradition. One of these cities was Fatima because, as you mentioned in the Quran, the holiest woman 
within humanity in Islam is Mary, the mother of the Prophet Jesus, as you mentioned, Gav. But the second holiest woman is Fatima, which is the daughter of Muhammad the Prophet. And so that's why they would name the city after Fatima, this daughter of, of Muhammad. When the Iberian Peninsula was eventually liberated, and it was liberated in stages, a lot of the cities were turned back to their ancient names from hundreds of years before. But some of them were just kept because they had become important cities, or they were founded, or they were so known by the inhabitants by their new name that they were just kept. And Fatima was one of them. So it kept its Muslim name, even though it had been liberated and was now back within the kingdom of Portugal. So this connection, this historical connection with this Fatima, with the name, is very important. Archbishop Sheen, who was a great Catholic televangelist through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, he wrote a book entitled The World's First Love. In that book, Archbishop Sheen makes the point that at Fatima, Mary claimed Islam. The Muslims, she claimed them as her own. And Archbishop Sheen makes the point that in the beautiful and mysterious plan of God, he thinks there's some connection there, that somehow Mary is going to play this role to bring Muslims, to bring all men and women to the fullness of faith found in Jesus Christ. So Archbishop Sheen immediately goes there, the world's first love, he says it's Our Lady, he immediately goes to Fatima and says, this is not a coincidence, this is not a mistake, God is doing something powerful here, and Mary is there once again leading humanity back to her son Jesus. Now what's beautiful about this is it is a mysterious plan. We're not really sure how it's going to play out. But certainly Our Lady was doing something which she chose, of all cities, to go to that little town of Fatima with this history and this theological overture in its name. I find that fascinating. It's an amazing story. I can't imagine how it's going to end. Goosebumps. It's, I'd say this is a very exciting time to be alive. <laughs> Are there any other interesting stories about Fatima that either you or Gus would like to share? Well, I'll tell you one that, that just always moves me whenever I think about it, in particular when I'm, when I'm one of those uh, wimp Christians, you know, when I just decide that, you know, I'm not going to pray or I'm not going to exercise virtue or, you know, we just have all, you know, sometimes those days or something. And um, I always think of the story of uh, Blessed Jacinta's death. Now, mind you, she was just a little girl. Yeah. And she was struck during the uh, Spanish flu. Uh, she suffered horribly. Uh, from that illness. She was eventually taken away from her hometown, away from her family for surgery. Because of the mass epidemic of the Spanish flu, when she arrived at the hospital, uh, there was no way for them to numb her body, to basically give her any type of anesthesia or, or any type of, of medicine at that time that was used to, to, to numb the body. It had been used up but she needed this surgery in her abdomen. And um, she's just a little girl. Her doctor was an adamant atheist who blatantly mocked the church, saying horrible things about the church, about Christian doctrine, about priests, and so on. And little Jacinta had to have the surgery. They put a piece of rope in her mouth, and they cut that little girl, her abdomen, open to do surgery. And that little girl, the entire time of the surgery, in excruciating pain, she prayed and offered that suffering 
for the conversion of her doctor. After the surgery, the doctor said, I don't know if there's a God, but any God that could have that little girl make such a powerful sacrifice, he has to be real. Because I believe. I believe. Wow. That was the life that was allowed to be shaped and molded because of her prayer, because of her encounter with Mary, because she allowed the heart of Mary to teach her own heart how to love and give Jesus everything. And that was the three of them. And many of our listeners may not realize it, but she only died shortly after the year 2000. But she has only been dead for a few years. She sat with Pope John Paul II in the year 2000 and watched her two little cousins, Francesco and Jacinta, beatified by Pope John Paul II in Fatima. You can imagine what was going through her mind. Wow. But this powerful story, and that's what the Lord wants to do in each of us. He wants to make us strong. And if we turn to Him in prayer, if we allow Him to shape our hearts, we can find those virtues. I think a little Jacinta lying on that surgeon's table, just giving everything to Jesus, trying to save the soul of her doctor. Powerful, incredible story. And she was 10 years old when she died. Can't wow. even imagine that strength. Most 10-year-olds are whining and crying. Exactly. And most, most 20-year-olds, too, but you know. Most, most 42. I mean, what am I, 43-year-olds? <laughs> I'm not saying. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I know when, when my children are suffering, I try to get them at that moment to actually offer their sufferings because that suffering doesn't go to waste in the economy of salvation, in the economy of grace. Our Lady says, so many souls go to hell because there's no one to pray for them. And if you think about it, anybody who, who does go to hell, God forbid, goes there by their because it's their fault. And yet we could prevent that by draw those graces down from heaven, and that suffering does it. But we can all offer our sufferings. God can accept our offering and convert that. It's a form of prayer to offer your suffering. Yes, I think that you know, earlier in our show we were talking about Fatima and how you know, these are options that no member of the faithful is obliged to believe these. But just as we tell these stories and as we realize the message that Our Lady gave at Fatima, you know, really the, the, the question that begins to just beg is, you know, these can be great helps. Why not avail ourselves as Christian believers of these tremendous helps? Because, you know, we all have times when, if we're not cautious, our, our faith can become stale or we can become lukewarm. It's a constant threat because the gospel is a radical message, a radical message. It's difficult for us to constantly be able to live it. And so the Lord is so generous with the gifts he gives us the sacraments, the sacred scriptures. He gives us the body of Christ, one another. He gives us shepherds that he appoints to guide us in in his teachings. He gives us these apparitions. He gives us so many sacramentals and, and devotions so that as Christians we can constantly turn, realizing that it's ever ancient, yet ever new. This love, this radical call that we have in Jesus Christ. I think that one of the reasons why so many of us struggle with the Christian faith, why maybe some of our listeners struggle with the Christian faith, is because if the Christian faith becomes compromised, if it's watered down, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Our Lady, when she appeared to the three children, each of the three children asked her, will I get to heaven? They saw hell. 
discuss earlier in the show, you mentioned how Our Lady showed them hell. Mm-hmm. And each of the children were so scared. And they asked Our Lady, will I go there? Will I go there? Will I go there? And Our Lady told Jacinta and Lucia they were okay. But she told Francesco, you've got to pray some more. I can't believe that because he was only nine years old. Well, I mean, I mean but, but you know what? I mean, once we reach the age of reason, I you're mean, right. You're right. What uh, a huge responsibility. But it, to me, a nine-year-old is a baby. Yeah, but if, <laughs> if, if you've reached the age of reason, it means you have the ability to choose mortal sin. And so one of the stories that I remember was... Uh, he used to like cut short the rosary and just say, Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. <laughs> so that he could get through the rosary faster. <laughs> so, he was a typical boy. Well, well, but, but, you know, it was one of those little things where, you know, our, of course, Our Lady is a very gentle mother. And I believe that she lovingly pointed that out to him. Or you something. must say many rosaries, she, she told yeah, him. Exactly. Good exactly. Nice. She totally called him to the carpet, you know. <laughs> what is it called? Call, told, she totally called him to the mat. I think it's also worth pointing out that if Fatima... In, in 1917, a nine-year-old, I think, was probably very different mm-hmm. than, I think, a nine-year-old in our culture today. I know sometimes I'm amazed that these three little children would be sent out into the woods, into the countryside by themselves, to tend the sheep. And that was common. Yeah. So I think that there was probably a lot more maturity and at those ages than what we might be accustomed to. Because I know the first time I heard that story, too, I thought, man, that poor kid. <laughs> you know, he turns, to our lady, he turns to our lady and says, you know, what about me? And she's like, yeah, you got to pray some more. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that you know, I remember telling an old Dominican father. I'm like, I was just, I, I loved him. His name was Father Thomas Kane, and he struck me as so holy. And I told him one time, I said, Father, you're going straight to heaven. And he just looked at me and he said, don't ever presume on the mercy. Don't ever presume on the mercy of God. And I'm like, whoa, if he's if he's scared, I really need to take a look at myself. <laughs> it, it does show, you know, the absolute holiness of God. We, we sometimes tend, tend to forget that. Father, these, these stories have been absolutely fascinating. Sadly, uh, we're getting to the end of our of our season here, Father. And tell us about your return to the States. What's happening on that front there, Father? Well, actually, early in the year, we, we talked a little bit about Damien of Molokai, and uh, I've just been so inspired here in Rome that, that actually, I, I'm just going to go to Molokai and minister to the <laughs> Okay, maybe not. No. Um, actually, I am really excited because uh, my time here in Rome is, is almost complete, and, and not because I necessarily want to leave Rome, but I'm just very eager to return home to South Carolina. Uh, many of our listeners uh, might know, as uh, Gus and Kathy know, that, that I'm a priest ordained for service to the Diocese of Charleston in South Carolina. And so it's kind of like my bride, you know, and I kind of feel like a dad has been away from the family, you know, for a very long time. And uh, I'm definitely ready uh, to get back home. This year has been challenging academically. Uh, my courses are in Italian. So not only is it uh, the challenge to learn theology, some of our listeners might remember them, studying graduate-level moral theology, includes bioethics, which is uh, such a specialized field, so important, the finer points uh, have to be known and, and known well, because faithful members of, the, of Christ's body who turn for direction, who seek counsel in areas of end-of-life issues in particular, I need clear answers, you know. And so it's been a theology, but then also is studying that theology in Italian. <laughs> and... Uh, and that's been a challenge. I've learned a lot, but uh, 
after two semesters and, and finishing um, this degree, it's, it's called a license in moral theology, and I'll be finishing up. I still have, I have to defend my thesis, and then I have comprehensive exams in just a few weeks, and then I'll be able to return home. Now, um, one of the big challenges, and uh, some of the priests who live here, I live in a priest house of about 70 American and Canadian priests. Some of the priests here were laughing because I was working on my thesis. And any guy in the house who's working on a thesis, all the other guys know, I just steer clear of that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's so much anxiety as far as getting resources. Research libraries really are are not heard of uh, here in Rome. And so trying to find resources, you have to bounce libraries or internet resources in order to find the things that you need for your paper. So that's been the big task these past several months, has been finalizing the research, writing, and then putting it in a special format, uh, this thesis uh, for submission at the university. And I wrote on the use of the natural law as teacher in public discourse. And what that means is basically how, as a church, Uh, which claims to have and and does have the truths of Jesus Christ, particularly the moral truths given by Jesus Christ. How do we present these truths in a pluralistic society, in public forum, and make these moral truths clear, credible, and convincing? How do we do that? Like, How do we convince our society that abortion is wrong? How do we convince a pluralistic society that gay marriage is wrong? How do we convince a society that holds so many different worldviews and religious beliefs? How do we convince them that something is wrong and something is right? You know, and I think it's a huge message. It's a message very close to our Holy Father's heart. Uh, Paul Benedict has spoken so often about the natural law that uh, that in my research it, it almost became too much. Uh, Always, always, uh, he has spoken about the natural law. And what the natural law is, is basically, each of us as human persons, we participate in the order of creation, in God's order, his providence. And because of our intellect, our will, we're able to participate in this, and we're able to know right from wrong. We're able to understand what is correct, what is incorrect. And the fact that we can all see a general consensus, we all know slavery is wrong. We all know that child abuse is wrong. We all know that rape is wrong. We recognize that this consensus points to something that is true, that is ingrained in us, that is a part, St. Paul says, it's written on our heart, you know, this natural law, this law of our human nature. And that's our best argument, one of our best arguments in the public forum, and that's been uh, my research. <laughs> and I don't ever want to talk about the natural law again. <laughs> Well, we look forward to seeing you in person, Father, very soon. (laughs) Right, right, right. No, but I'm ready. I'm ready. Finish things up here and and, and head back. I know in South Carolina, things are probably getting hot. Oh, yeah. It's it's getting warm. (laughs) And and here in Rome, it's also getting hot. But the difficult thing here is we don't have air conditioning. Well, all I can say is offer it up, Father. <laughs> that's right. That's why I think of Blessed Jacinta. <laughs> there you go. Like, 
Well, thank you very much, Father. And I just want to remind our listeners that even though this is our last show for this season, they can always go to the website, www.catholicradioinsc.com, and they can go to the programming drop-down and, and go to the local shows, and they can hear these shows again during the summer. And, and those of you who are techies, you can actually uh, find this on iTunes. You can find them and download them onto your iPod device. Very good. Now, Father, would you end us with a blessing, please? I will, but first I, I just want to say on the air and to all of our listeners how grateful I am for the work, uh, Kathy and, and Gus, that, that you have put into uh, this show this past year. I want to thank our producer, Michael, for the work he's done. Uh, I tell you, the love and dedication for the faith that you've each shown uh, in our shows, I've just been very edified and, and inspired by that. And you know, I know that Gus and Kathy have you know, spouses and, and families and, and children, and more children, <laughs> and uh, and I I just want to say very much uh, thank you for for everything you've done for the show this past year. Well, thank you, Father. Thank you, You're Father, very welcome. Very much. That the Lord be with you and, and also, also with, with you. you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You've been listening to Pathways to Rome, starring Father Jeffrey Kirby, along with Kathy Kerfoot and Gus Killo. Pathways to Rome is a Mediatrix radio production and can be heard weekly at this time. For more information about this show, or if you would like to listen to previous broadcasts, visit our website, www.catholicradioinsc.com. That's catholicradioinsc.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Pathways to Rome was made possible by donations from Dr. Larry and Iris Minetti, Jim and Jan Carino, Donald and Marilyn Reichert, an anonymous sponsor of Catholic Radio, and contributions from Mediatrics Radio listeners. To learn more about Pathways to Rome or to listen to this or other episodes, Mediatrics Radio's website is www.catholicradioinsc.com. Put the power of video to work for you. Whether it's a short marketing presentation or an hour-long training video, turn to the Emmy Award-winning experts at Extreme Vision Studios. Present your message clearly and concisely. Video allows you to produce your image and gives you a professional look that shines. Call Extreme Vision Studios today for a free consultation. The number is 864-590-9970. That number again is 864-590-9970. Extreme Vision Studios, proud sponsor of South Carolina Catholic Radio. Polydex Screen Corporation, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, was founded in Spartanburg in 1978 to manufacture and market modular synthetic screen media in North America, serving the gold, copper, phosphate, and aggregate industries. Polydex strives to honor God in all they do. Their phone number is 864-579-4594. They're also on the web at www.polydexscreen.com. 
St. Anthony's Catholic Store, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, offers books on apologetics, spirituality, theology, and church history to assist adults and children in their faith formation. They also provide sacred vessels, vestments, and hand-carved statuary to parishes and maintain an inventory of baptismal, communion, confirmation, and wedding gifts. For more information about this family-owned business located at 443C Congaree Road near Haywood Mall, John or Judy can be reached at 864-288-0335. Holly Tree Pediatric Dentistry, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, is located at 1334 South Highway 14 between Woodruff Road and Main Street in Simpsonville. Dr. Ann Bynum specializes in pediatric dentistry and has cared for the dental health of upstate children since opening her practice in 1997. For more information, Dr. Ann's website is hollytreepediatricdentistry.com. Our Holly Tree's phone number is 864-297-5585. That's 864-297-5585. AKJ Consulting, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, in cooperation with New Way Properties, utilizes years of experience to assist people in finding and acquiring affordable housing in the upstate. They also have a program to assist those in danger of going into foreclosure. For more information, David Case can be reached at 864-430-4877. That's 864-430-4877. There's a new way to get rid of an old car, truck, or gas guzzler. No matter what condition it is in, Catholic Charities will pick it up at home, office, or repair shop and handle all of the paperwork. Catholic Charities is a 501c3 not-for-profit entity associated with the Diocese of Charleston. For more information, Catholic Charities can be reached at 877-885-4483. That's 877-885-GIVE. Or reach them on the web at www.supportcatholiccharities.org. Priest for Life organizes a monthly rosary led by a priest or deacon of the Diocese of Charleston every third Saturday in each month. Members from local parishes gather to pray the rosary from 8 to 9 a.m. at the West Ashley Abortion Facility located at 1312 Ashley River Road. That's at the corner of Highway 61 and Fusler in Charleston. For further information, Stephen Boyle can be reached at 843-763-0681. In these challenging economic times, our taxes are probably going up. In Matthew 22, Jesus says to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So is it enough to be resigned and pay our taxes while giving our hearts to God? The real question is, how can we give to Caesar in such a way that transforms society for the good of the kingdom? What can we do with our resources and the taxes we pay to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and serve the least of our brothers that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25? Since after all, it's not our money. I'm Joe Galloway. Eastside Eye Care, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, is located at 2411 Hudson Road, which is between Brushy Creek and Old Spartanburg Roads, across from the Bilo Shopping Center in Greer. Dr. Michael E. Baldwin began practicing in Greenville in 1984 and established Eastside Eye Care in 1987. For more information, Dr. Baldwin's website is drmbaldwin.com or the phone number is 864-268-4204. Spartan Custom, a family-owned business with an in-house art department and over 35 years' experience in promotional products, offers screen printing for sports teams, companies, schools, and restaurants, as well as embroidery for caps, shirts, and uniforms. Signs, magnets, stickers, and more are also available from this proud sponsor of Catholic Radio. For more information, their sales team can be reached at 864-576-4225. Their web address is www.spartancustom.net. 
Bagatelle Caterers, a proud sponsor of Catholic Radio, offers full-service catering for corporate functions, cookouts, holiday get-togethers, wedding receptions, or any other occasion, so long as the guest list is less than 13,000 people. For their various menus or more information about this family-owned business, located at 2514 East North Street in Greenville, their website is bagatellecaterers.com. That's B-A-G-A-T-E-L-L-E caterers.com. They can also be reached at 322-9001. 